Well, you guys can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, my name is Josh Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. And whether you're in the room or you're online, we're really glad that you've decided to join us today. Um, so myself and our other pastors on staff get to preach to you about 45 times a year. So I have the privilege of preaching a lot of those times. Some of our other pastors and elders do as well. Um, but we always intentionally reserve five or six Sundays every year where we invite another godly pastor that we know to come and bring us a word from the Lord. And as I'm thinking through, man, who to invite, as I'm prayerfully asking God, who would you have me invite to come and preach to our church? I always ask that question, who has a word for our church in this season? Because that is really what preaching is about. It's about going to the word of God for a word from God. Okay, it's not just about learning more knowledge. It's not just about becoming a better trivia, you know, player when it comes to Bible trivia. It's about experiencing and engaging with the God of the universe through his inspired word. That is what we're after every single Sunday here at Center Church, that you would be impacted by the word of God, that you would engage with God on a personal level. And I learned that. I learned that that is the goal of preaching from the man who will be preaching to us today, Pastor Chris Gaynor. Pastor Chris Gaynor has served on staff at the Summit Church in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina for 35 years. He was there while I was there for six years. I was an associate pastor on staff. And man, he just invested in me and he modeled for me what it looks like to engage with God through his word, to talk to God in prayer. He serves as the pastor of prayer and worship at the summit, but is also basically the de facto pastor of the pastors. So if you're on staff there and you're a pastor and you need somebody to pastor you, you go to Chris's office, right? There'd be a steady stream of us coming out with tissues, you know? And uh, he also has a ministry to those that that church has sent out to plant new churches. So we were sent out by the summit church three years ago to plant Center Church, and Chris has been a constant encouragement in my life, praying for me, supporting me, asking, hey, how are you? How's your heart? How's your family? How can I be praying for you? So when I thought, God, who would you have come and preach from your word to our church today? Man, Pastor Chris was on the very top of the list. He's been married to his wife, Michelle, for 15 years. He has a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old son who are both very tall. Okay, I saw a picture of them earlier, uh, and he is a mentor. He's an encouragement, and he is a role model for me, and I could not be more thrilled to have him preach. So would you join me in giving a Warm Center Church welcome to Pastor Chris Gaynor. Woo! <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Um, yeah, I usually tell people uh, these are my children, not my grandchildren, uh, so they don't get confused. And uh, they are big. My 13-year-old is six feet tall, but I tell them I need them to be big because somebody's got to pick me up out of the wheelchair and put me into bed. So um, they are my nursing care plan. Um, it's so good. Uh, to be with you uh, today and uh, be able to share with you what, what I think God has put on my heart um, to, to share with you today. Um, I'm kind of looking across the room and trying to figure out who's going to connect with this, but uh, how many of you uh, remember the story of uh, Chicken Little? Okay, for the rest of you, I'm going to enlighten you with this wealth of knowledge. You'll be enriched and deeply blessed by it. So, <laughs> Basically, Chicken Little is the story about a little chick named Henny Penny who's uh, out in the barnyard uh, trying to pull up a worm out of the ground. And as she struggles with that worm, suddenly an acorn falls from the tree above her and hits her on the head. And Henny Penny becomes convinced that the sky is falling. And in her desperation, she feels that it is her civic duty to go and warn the king that the sky is falling. So Henny Penny takes off to the king's palace to warn him that the sky is falling. And as she goes, she tells everybody she meets along the way, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And so Henny Penny collects this entourage of people who are going with her to the king to tell him that the sky is falling. Well, 
As it turns out, Henny Penny finally discovers that it wasn't the sky that was falling, but it was actually an acorn that fell on her head, and everybody lives happily ever after. Be uh, enriched and blessed and well-nourished by that today. So the reason I tell you that story is because I'm going to be honest with you and tell you, like, there's a lot of days in the last year and a half that I felt like Henny Penny. Even days now where I feel like, man, I feel like the sky's falling. I feel like everything's coming apart at the seams, like it's all falling apart. It doesn't make sense to me. It's, it's hard to know what's really happening because I don't know what's news and what's fake news. I, I don't know what to believe and what to disbelieve, and it creates a great deal of anxiety in me because it feels like everything is coming apart. I mean, if a global pandemic with all of the ensuing chaos that's come out of that is not enough... There seems to be this steady stream of one disaster after another, whether it's, you know, 105-degree heat in the Northwest that's uh, causing death, it's fires in California, it's the building collapse in Miami, it's the uncovering of uh, incredible uh, racism and strife in our country, there's political discord, I mean, it's just all over the place, and it feels like everything is falling apart. And it's hard for me to stand on this stage tonight in front of you and believe that you don't feel at least a little bit of that. A little bit of the anxiety in the sense that really all is not well in the world, right? Okay, I t- let, me, let, me, let, me, let me lay a little groundwork. This will go a lot better for y'all if you'll talk back to me, okay? <clears throat> Thank you, Jason. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to assume you're not getting it, which means I'm going to preach longer. So... <laughs> If you've had dinner, you might be good. Otherwise, you better start talking, all right? (laughs) Josh is hungry, all right. You know, there is that sense. I mean, right, even if you don't feel it, your friends feel it, the people you work with. There's a high degree of anxiety all across our country, a crisis in mental health. And I think much of that is driven by the reality that people are so disturbed by by the recognition that the world is not what it should be, right? But, but for some of you, the sense of crisis is way more personal than that. Maybe, maybe it's just the reality that your job is not secure or you don't have a job or you can't get the kind of job you, you want. Maybe it's the, the sudden recognition after a doctor's visit that your, your body has been invaded by some disease and, and you're, you're watching yourself be debilitated or maybe you're watching that happen in the life of somebody you love. Maybe your, your dreams of marriage and family are, are, are you're just wondering, is it ever going to happen? Maybe your marriage has already fallen apart or your family's a struggle or your kids are rebelling and, and nothing seems to be the way you always imagined it to be. So what do you do? When there's crisis, when there's anxiety, when there's disappointment, what what are you and I supposed to do? How do we respond when we feel overwhelmed by the circumstances of life? Well, today, I want to take uh, just a snapshot from the life of Jesus, and I want to show you what he did in a moment of crisis. And out of that, I want to draw four things that I think you and I can apply to our lives and learn about what we should do 
when we encounter crisis and difficulty. If you've got your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to Mark chapter 14. We're just going to look at about five verses together, verses 32 to 36. But let me just set the stage. I don't want to assume that you know what's happening here. This is toward the end of Jesus' ministry on the earth, towards the end of his life. He has finished his public ministry, so to speak. He's engaged in his last, what we call the last supper with the disciples. He's uh, begun to unpack for them what's going to happen. And he and the disciples leave after partaking of the Lord's Supper together, that last supper together. They leave and go out to the Mount of Olives. And this is immediately preceding Jesus' trial and crucifixion and death and then ultimate resurrection. All right, Mark chapter 14, we'll pick it up at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Then he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Can I just pause there and say, this is not Jesus being overly dramatic. This is Jesus literally telling you the distress that that he's under. And so he says to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Verse 36, this is Jesus' prayer. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Listen, the the crisis for Jesus is is real. It's not imagined. It's it's not made up. And it's not exaggerated. Unlike many of the impending crises that, that we face, that we don't really know what's happening, we don't really know what's coming, Jesus actually knew the full extent of what was about to come upon him. There's no ambiguity or uncertainty. That's why he says in verse 34, my soul is overwhelmed to the point with sorrow to the point of death. Listen, Jesus knows what's about to happen. He knows he's going to be betrayed by one of his disciples. He's fully cognizant of the fact that all of his closest friends are going to abandon him. He's anticipating the reality that he will be beaten and scourged and nailed to a cross. And on that cross, he will endure all of God's wrath for our sin. Jesus is crystal clear about what's about to happen to him. He knew the pain that was coming. He knew the separation from the Father that he was about to endure. He knew the brokenness that he would experience in his body and the hell that he would endure on our behalf. His crisis was of a greater magnitude than anything you and I could ever even imagine. More painful and more distressing than anything any of us will ever have to endure. And so for that reason, I believe that what Jesus does as the crisis unfolds is an appropriate guide for us in how to respond when heartache and hardship and crisis and trouble come our way. So what did Jesus do? He prayed. He prayed. But it's not just that Jesus prayed. It's how and what he prayed that's our instruction for how to handle life's difficulty. There are four things I want to pull out of this passage, and I'm going to ask you to write them down. 
pull out your phone, make notes, because I think these are worthy of at least looking back again and asking, is this something I need to do? At the very least, you can take it and apply it to Scripture and ask, did the preacher tell the truth tonight? Okay? Let's be a Berean, all right? The first thing Jesus did was this. He shared the crisis with his closest companions. Jesus shared the crisis with his closest companions. Look at verse 33. It says, he took Peter, James, and John along with him. So make sure you don't misunderstand what's happening here. All of the disciples came out of the, uh, of the upper room to the garden. But Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and goes a little further, separate from the rest of them. And he does this because Peter, James, and John, they're his closest friends. They're his confidants. They're, they're the ones that Jesus regularly drew up next to them uh, to, to, to expose them to what God was doing in his life and what God wanted to do in their lives. This was the pattern of Jesus' life. In Mark 5, when he goes to heal Jairus' daughter, he takes Peter, James, and John with him. In Mark 9, when Jesus goes up on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, where his body is glorified and he experiences uh, this incredible um, audience with God the Father and, and, uh, and the prophets are there and, and the disciples are amazed by this, the, the three he takes are Peter, James, and John. They were his closest friends. They, they were his confidants. And so in his time of difficulty and trouble, these are the men that support him. He humbly asks them to pray with him, to help shoulder the load. But it wasn't just about him deriving comfort for, from their presence. Listen, it was also uh, for their benefit. Just as much as Jesus knew the crisis he was going to face, he knew exactly what kind of crisis was about to come on the disciples. He, he knew what was about to happen in, in their life. And so Jesus' invitation to them in this moment is come and watch, come, come and learn, come and experience the faithfulness of God in the midst of heartache and pain and difficulty. You see, it was for their benefit that they got to watch God the Father minister to the Son in this moment. They got to see the faithfulness of God played out in Jesus' obedience, and that served to spur them on to faithfulness and obedience. You know what? I think the application is obvious. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to figure it out, and that's a good thing because I'm not one. You need to be in community. You need to be in community. You, you need to cultivate godly friendships. You need the body of Christ in your life, people who will walk with you through crisis and shoulder the load. But you don't just need it for your own benefit. You need to be in community for the sake of others. You need to let other people see the faithfulness and goodness of God in the midst of pain and suffering. Listen to me, and I'm going to say this to men in particular because somehow we've gotten this notion in our society that, it, that you're a man if you do it on your own. Like it's more manly to keep your problems to yourself. It's like we want to pull ourselves by the bootstraps and prove that we've got what it takes. Listen to me, that's a sinful attitude. Because God calls you to be in community. God calls you to walk with other people because not only do you need the help of the body, the body needs to see the faithfulness of God in you. When you shield 
your friends from the struggle and the trouble and the hardship that you are experiencing. You also keep them from the benefit of being able to see the faithfulness of God. That you, you, you keep them from being able to experience God's provision. When, when you hold back from telling people what you're going through, you keep them from benefiting from the work of God in your life. Listen, when you aren't connected to the body, you aren't just depriving yourself. You're robbing other people. I, I thought about this as we we're singing tonight. We did it in the first service. We sang it again. We will remember and never forget. You are our God. You are our God. Listen, singing is one of the ways that God ordained that the body of Christ should drive the truth of the activity of God deep into each other's hearts. But just as we sing together and declare it, we need to talk about it. We need to pray with each other. We need to walk with one another in hardship and difficulty because it's then that we get to see the faithfulness and goodness of God played out in our lives. You need to be in community. And I'm going to say this to you college students. Let me just tell you something. I'm going to be straight with you. If there was ever a time in your life that you needed to be selective about your friends, it's now. You need to choose wisely those who will speak truth to you. You need to look at the fruit of the lives of the people around you and ask the question, who is it that's living the way I want to live? You need to surround yourself because I'm going to tell you, as a 62-year-old man, I still need people around me who will speak truth to me who will call out error, who will remind me of the goodness of God and call me to believe and trust and follow and obey. You need the body of Christ in your life. Jesus took his closest companions with him into the crisis. The second thing is this. When he prayed, Jesus focused on the character of God. When he prayed, Jesus focused on the character of God. Look at his prayer. Verse 36. Abba, Father, he said, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. You see how he begins? Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Much like the instruction to his disciples and to us in how to pray when he gave us the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, Jesus begins his prayer here with Abba, Father, Everything is possible for you. He starts by focusing on God's fatherly compassion and his sovereign power. I don't know why, but it's easy for us to read this, Abba, Father, and just not give it the weight it deserves. I want you to understand this is not a, a casual greeting. It's not just a polite way to say a prayer. It's not just the opener to a conversation. This is an expression of, of tenderness and intimacy, and delight. If we translated it literally, it would read, Papa, Papa, Daddy. It's the cry of a son loved by his father, tenderly expecting to be heard and received by his dad. It's delighting in how God has revealed himself to be. Of all the things the scripture repeatedly calls us to remember, it is that God is our Father. Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. 
I, I don't know what your experience with your dad was. I, I don't know whether you had a great experience with your dad or whether it was a horrible experience, but, but here's what I, I want to say to you. Every one of us instinctively knows what a father should be. Everyone has an internal tuning fork that says to us, a father should provide compassion and care and direction and help to his children. You see, we instinctively know that. And, and because that's what we understand to be right and good, God has said to us in the same way that a good father has compassion on his children, that's exactly how God treats you. So, some of you in the room, I, I don't know if this will connect with you or not, but um, you know what? I, I have a great relationship with my dad. He's still living. Um, not, not a perfect dad, but, but man, I never had a problem with the father love of God from a receiving end. And I realize my experience is not the same for everybody. But I will tell you this, that when I had children, my understanding of the compassion of God changed dramatically. There's something that happens to you when you're a parent. Those of you in the room that have been through this, you know what I'm talking about. Man, you hold that baby for the first time, and there's this rush of love that comes over you, and you don't even know where it came from. There, there are moments when you look at your kids playing in the yard, and there's this wave of compassion that comes over you. You, you rush your kid to the emergency room for a broken arm or a stubbed toe or some illness and sickness. And, and, and man, you just, you just ooze with compassion. And I suddenly realized that 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 I feel for my kids is just a very small reflection of what God feels for me. My, my, my compassion for my kids at best is a dim reflection of God's compassion for me and for them. Listen, when we pray, we need to look, learn to look full in the face of our Father. We, we need to look Him square in the eye and adore our loving and merciful God. And listen to me, when trouble and hardship and difficulty come and you're tempted to question His character or disbelieve His love for you, and if you haven't had that experience, it'll happen. Some trouble will come over you, and you'll hear this question rise up in you. Does God really love me? Does he care about me? Because if he cared about me, I don't think my life would look up as, and you need to go back, and you need to remind yourself of what the Scripture says in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's great love for us, we are not consumed. Listen to me. You've not been destroyed because God loves you. His compassion is what keeps you. His mercy and kindness is what enables you to endure and sustains you. The Lord's great, because of the Lord's great love for us, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Listen to me. You need to say that to yourself over and over again to remind yourself of the truth of God's love for you. Whether you feel like it or not. I don't care what your circumstances are. You need to put yourself in a position to marvel at the great love of your father. But there's another aspect of this that we cannot overlook. To call God father is to identify yourself as a son or daughter. There are only two people in the world who can call me daddy. Hudson and Hannon. That's it. That's it. 
And for us to call God, God Father means we've identified ourselves as his sons and his daughters. Listen to what Ephesians 2 says about us. Ephesians 2 says that uh, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It actually calls us sons of obedience and children of wrath. That was our condition, pre-adoption. But verse 4, Ephesians 2, 4 says this, but God, being great, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. In Jesus, you are no longer a child of wrath, but you are an adopted son or daughter by God's grace in his precious son. Can I ask you this? Do you know tonight that you're a son or daughter of the Most High God? Do you know that? Do you know that you belong to the King of the Ages, the God of the universe? Do you know that you've been adopted, chosen, called, justified by His grace? Is that your reality tonight? Have you by faith been adopted into the family of God? Listen to me. You don't become a son on the basis of what you do or where you were born or who your parents were, or whether you went to church or not. You become a son by trusting in what Jesus has done. For some of you in this room or watching online, this is the most important thing you need to, to know today, that you can embrace the rich mercy and grace of God that can make you alive and make you a son or a daughter. It's not complicated. There, there are no magic words. You just say to God in your own way, I, I know, I know, I recognize I'm a child of wrath. I, I know I deserve discipline and punishment. I know I deserve to be kicked out because I've refused to follow you. I've chosen to do it my way. I've rebelled. But, but I want to turn from my sin. I want to submit and surrender myself to you. I want you, God, to save me and make me alive and adopt me into your family. I surrender myself to you. That's all it takes. Not magic words, but a heart turned toward and surrendered to God. And if you are a son or daughter, then I'm going to tell you this. Worship the God who loves you. Adore him. 1 John 3, 1 says, See, behold, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we, what we are. Listen, that kind of love says more about him than it does about you. So bask in it. Revel in it. Embrace it. And worship your Father. The third thing Jesus did as he prayed was this. He recalled the power of God. Jesus recalled the power of God. So he took his closest companions into the crisis. He began by focusing on the character of God. And now he recalls the power of God. Verse 36 again. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Everything is possible for you. As I, I was working on this, I thought, you know, we're past that stage with our boys. There was a time where my kids thought I knew everything and could do anything. Now my kids think I know nothing and can do nothing. 
They're teenagers, just in case you're wondering, 12 and 13. If you have toddlers or uh, school-age kids, enjoy it. It'll be over before you uh, can imagine. Um, listen, y'all, this is a resounding declaration of faith in the middle of turmoil. You can do everything. Everything is possible for you. Jesus doesn't say this post the resurrection. He says it in the garden anticipating the trouble. In the middle of the difficulty, Jesus expresses his confidence in the power of God. Listen, it's not an empty platitude. He's not just saying stuff to try to get God to do his thing. It's it's what he knows. It's anchored in all that he has seen God do. Jesus was there in the beginning. He he was there in the beginning when the world was created, when, when everything was formless and void, and God spoke the word, and the worlds came into existence. God made everything out of nothing, and so Jesus knows he can do anything. Jesus was there when God began to fulfill the promises, promise to make a great nation out of impotent Abraham and old Sarah, and, and, God, and Jesus watched that happen, and so he knows God can do anything. Jesus was there. He, he watched as God began to draw the children of Israel and call them and res- rescue them from bondage in Egypt and bring them into the promised land. Jesus was there when the lame walked and the blind could see and the dead came out of the tomb. Jesus was there. He saw God work. And so in his impossible moment, Jesus knows nothing is impossible for God because he's seen God do the impossible. So in his moment, in his crisis, he remembers the deeds of God and the goodness of God and he calls on the power and grace of God. So a few years ago, I don't remember how many, we were at the beach. My boys were out playing um, in the water, boogie boarding, skim boarding, something I don't know, just running around in the ocean, just having a great time and my wife was probably down there with them, and I was standing back on the beach just watching them frolic and play, and I'll be straight with you, I was consumed with some personal disappointment about um, a situation we were in and, and what felt like just the absence of God in it. And uh, I, I don't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure I was sulking up on the beach, and I just... This thought just came to my mind. I believe it was the Holy Spirit. And this was the question that came to my mind. If you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what was best for your boys and you had the power to do it, would you do it? It's a no-brainer. Of course I would. Every parent's dilemma is, one, we don't really know what's best, and two, most of the time, we don't have the power to affect it. We're, we're, we're deficient on both. Of course, if I knew what was best and I had the power to do it, of course I would do it. And as quickly as I answered that question with, yes, the Holy Spirit came over me, and God the Father, I think, spoke to me and said, I'm that kind of dad. I'm that kind of dad. 
I know what's best for you. And I have the power to work it all out. And you can trust me and believe that I will do it. And then this verse from Matthew 7, 11 rushed into my brain. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask him? Listen to me. Your best praying in any situation will not come from a thorough examination of your circumstance, but from a thorough exaltation of the character of God. You know what my problem is? I'm better at describing the trouble I'm in than I am at describing the God who's going to rescue me. You, you don't need, God doesn't need you to, do you know this? He doesn't need you to describe the problem to him. I'm, I'm dumbfounded sometimes by when I'm praying with other people, the lengths to which they go to describe their problem as if God has no idea what's going on. God, God's not looking for you to describe the problem. God's looking for you to express faith in him by declaring his character and his goodness and his power. More than I need to know the details of my situation and describe them to God I, or formulate a plan of action and ask him to do what I think is best, I need to know who God is and who I am in him. I need to be familiar with his ways. I need to recall his deeds. I need to recount his promises. Because listen, more than praying is about getting something from God, praying is getting to God. Because I don't just need what God can do. I need who he is. Can, can I say that to you again? You, just don't, you don't just need what God can do. You need who he is. You don't, you don't just need to know that he can win the battle. You, know that the, you need to know that the king of the armies of heaven is with you. You, you need to know who he is, that he is with you, and that he is for you. You need to rehearse his character and talk about his greatness. Number four, Jesus surrendered to the purposes of God. Okay, so he took his closest companions in. He, he began by focusing on the character of God. He recalled the power of God, and then he surrendered to the purposes of God. All right, look at it again. Back half of verse 36, Jesus said, Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Again, right here, we see Jesus following the pattern that was given to us in what we call the model prayer. When he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. You see that? Jesus is modeling for us what it means to surrender to the will and the way of God. But I'm going to be straight with you. I find this so intriguing. Why would Jesus say, take this cup from me? He knew there wasn't a plan B. Jesus knew there wasn't an alternate route to salvation. The scripture says that he was the lamb slain from the creation of the world. In eternity past, he and the Father conceived this plan and agreed upon it. Jesus knew there wasn't a way out, and yet he verbalizes the desire to not have to endure the pain and suffering and separation got from God the Father. Let me tell you what I think is happening. I think in this moment, Jesus, fully human, is expressing his desire to escape the pain and hardship. 
But Jesus, fully divine, is willingly giving himself to participate in the redemption, great redemption plan of God. I think you have the humanity and divinity of Jesus colliding in this moment. I'm so thankful for this part of the prayer because I think it gives you and me both permission and direction in our praying. Let me explain what I mean. Permission. You and I can honestly cry out to God. Because of how Jesus prayed, we can say, is there any other way? Can, God, can you take me out of this situation? Can you remove me from this difficulty? Can you take this sickness from me? Can you repair this relationship? God, can you restore hope here? Can we do it some other way? I don't want to endure this pain and hard week. Can we just do it another way? And I want you to hear tonight that God can handle your complaint. He can deal with your objection. Can I just say this? When you don't say it, you're not fooling anybody. He knows what you're thinking. You might as well get it out and be honest. God's not going to be deceived or coerced into doing something because you're not straight with him. There's nothing wrong with saying to him, I don't like this. I don't want this. But you can't stop there. Because we, well, let me just say this. It's, well, you can ask. It's perfectly acceptable to ask. Listen, the scriptures are full of instances where people ask God to change their circumstance, and he did exactly that. But you don't have, just have permission to ask. My brothers and sisters, you've been instructed to ask. Matthew 7, 7. You know this verse? Ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek. And you'll find, knock, and the door will be open to you. That's not a suggestion. It's an imperative. It's a command. Ask. Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Ask. Ask. Or how about this one, James 4, 2? I love this. The reason you don't have. Because you don't ask. My children do not suffer from that problem. You don't have because you don't ask. Listen to me. God clearly expects us to ask. But it's not just permission to ask. It's direction as well. Don't stop with give me what I want. Watch what Jesus says. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Listen, this is not resignation, and it's not reluctant surrender. It's not because Jesus has got, because God the Father's got Jesus under his thumb. It's not the result of being defeated or overpowered by God. Listen, Jesus' statement right there is joyful, expectant embrace of the plans and purposes of God. You want to know how I know that? Hebrews 4 do. I mean, Hebrews 12, 2 says this, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Look at me. Look at me. More than Jesus wanted to escape pain and suffering, he wanted to see your salvation purchased on the cross. 
more than Jesus wanted to escape hardship and difficulty and pain and suffering, he wanted to accomplish the great work of salvation for all of mankind. Listen, the heart that longs for a change of circumstance must have a greater longing. A longing to see God accomplish his purposes in the way he deems best. It's fine for you to want to change. But you need to want something bigger than just change. You need to want to see God do his work in and through you. That's why one of my favorite verses is Romans 8, 38, for we, uh, 8, 28. For we know that in all things God works together for good. For those who loved him and are called according to his purpose. But don't stop there because the next verse says, For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. I'm addicted to comfort. I'm a pleasure junkie. I like ease. I want everything to work out. I love peace and quiet. But let me tell you something. I think God is about something bigger and better in my life than just making me comfortable and happy. He's about conforming me to the image of his son. So more than I want to escape hardship and difficulty and pain, I want God to do the great work of conforming me to Jesus, of making me day by day more like him, more dependent on him, more in love with him, more obedient to him, and more trusting of him. At my home church, uh, we are very fond of quoting Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his great power that has worked within us. I'm pretty sure Josh quotes that at least once a month. Y'all heard it around here? I mean, God's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we could ask or imagine. Here's what I think we miss. The implication of these verses isn't just that God can do more, but that he can do better. He, he can't, he, it's not that he just is able to do more than you can imagine. He can do better than you can imagine. And he can do better, not just because he's more powerful than we are, but because his imaginations and his thinking and his wisdom and his knowledge and his understanding are greater than ours. Listen to me. His dreams for you are better than your dreams for yourself. I wish you could get a hold of that. The best thing you can think of, God can trump it. Because he can imagine more, he understands more, he sees more. Listen, your dreams are limited and temporal and finite. And in most cases, all they will benefit is you. But God's dreams are eternal and everlasting and far-reaching. And for the good of all mankind and for his great glory... So release your dreams to him and submit your plans to him and embrace his desires for you. But I do want to say this to you. Submission and surrender are a function of trust. I want to be really clear here. You will never be able to honestly say, yet not my will, but what you will, until your heart is thoroughly captivated by the Father who has loved you with an everlasting love.
you can't submit until you're awed by his goodness and faithfulness. Abba, Father, Jesus said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. You know what? It's not complicated. Everybody can pray this way. Did you notice? There are no big words. There there are no big words. It's not overly eloquent. Nobody's going to ooh and ah over this prayer. Nobody's going to be overly impressed by it. It's quite simple, but very powerful. And there's not a soul seated in the room or watching us online that can't learn to pray this way. So I want to issue this, you this challenge. I want to challenge you to begin to pray this way this week. Don't wait for a crisis to hit. I, I, I want to make sure you understand this. Jesus, this wasn't the first time Jesus prayed like this. He didn't start when the crisis hit. It was his pattern. It was his habit. Prayer was a regular thing with him. And so in trouble, he knew what to do because the path to the throne was well-worn. He didn't have to try to find it in trouble. He knew how to get there. So I want to challenge you to start praying this way. It won't come natural. Listen to me. Your default is mine, right? What do we do? We start to call out what we need God to fix. We start voicing our complaint. And we do that without any, without any thought about who we're talking to. When I teach on prayer, I always say this. When you know who you're talking to and you know what they can do, it changes what you ask for and how you ask. You see, when you approach God having thoroughly filled your mind with his character and his work, it changes how you start to pray. And it changes what you ask for. So start by worshiping and adoring your father. When you read your Bible in the morning, and you should read your Bible in the morning, every morning, you should feast on the Word of God. Look for the character of God. Stop reading the Bible like an instruction manual. Before it was an instruction manual, it was a revelation of the character of God. So read it that way. Look for Him. Do what what, uh, Psalm 27.4 says. Abide in the temple of God and gaze on his beauty and seek him in his temple. Look for God. And when you see something about his character, write it down and repeat it. Say it back to him. Fill your heart with the wonder of who he is. Think about what God's done in your life, about how he's worked, about his, his great power. Think about how you've seen God work in the lives of your brothers and sisters around you. Think about what you know about the history of how God has worked all through the ages. Read the scriptures and look for the powerful deliverance of God described for us in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and let that fill you with awe and wonder at the power of God and give him thanks. And then pour out your request. Say it to him. Ask him to work. Ask him to move. But then willingly, joyfully surrender yourself to the purposes of God. You know what? I think the best thing we could do is begin at the close of the service by applying this here and now. I don't know if you noticed this, but um, When we read the passage earlier, it says that Jesus leaves Peter, James, and John, and he goes a little bit further, and he fell down. Jesus wasn't sitting in a coochie chair. 
in an air-conditioned auditorium. He was on his knees on a rocky terrain calling out to the Father who loved him. So I want to ask you this. If you're able, I'd like to invite you to get on your knees right where you are. Some of you may want to come here to the front and kneel around the altar. You want to find another space. But, but if you're able, if you're physically able, I want to encourage you to bow yourself tonight before God the Father. And we're going to pray together. I'm going to walk you through it. We're going to call out to him just as Jesus did. So would you just start here? Would you just start with a declaration of worship? Can you just tell him, I know you love me, God. I know you're a good father. Call out his goodness. Speak to him out loud. Pray to him tonight. Worship him. Adore him for who he is. God, your heart is deep and good. Compassionate. Never fails. Kindness and mercy, God. It's who you are. Now, would you just think about how you've seen God work? What you know of his power to redeem and rescue and heal and deliver and provide and protect. Would you just give him thanks for the ways that he's worked in your life or in the lives of people around you? Call it out to him. Acknowledge it tonight before him. He can do anything because of what, he, what you've seen him do. Now, what troubles you? What concerns you? What worries you? What creates fear and anxiety in you? Just call that out to him tonight. What do you want to ask God to do? What do you want to ask him to change? Where do you want to see him heal and, and deliver? Where do you need him to provide? Just call it out. Say it to him. God, I want this. I want you to do this. I'm asking you, God, to move in this part of my life. Can you just open up your hands before him tonight and release that to him? Can you say to him, God, I, I want whatever you want. I want you to do what you think is best. I'm going to give this to you, God. I, I trust you. It's not about what I want, God. It's about what you want.
Papa, Daddy, you can do anything. God, would you change this? Yet not what I will. Not what I want, God. But what you want. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.